Well, good morning, everyone. It's a little dark in here today, huh? Um, I'm so excited to be able to teach again this morning. Uh, for the past, like, I think five months, I've been down in Kid City uh, and in the back just helping fix things and work on things. And uh, I think the last time I was up here was Jonah. So I'm excited to kick off our hospitality series uh, together this morning. So I've been doing a little reading recently about uh, St. Patrick, right? The same St. Patrick we celebrate, uh, the St. Patrick's Day. Uh, in 432, A.D. 432, Patrick boarded a ship uh, to Ireland with the goal of sharing the gospel there. Uh, up until this point, there had been plenty of opportunities and plenty of attempts to, uh, to share the gospel with the, the Celtic peoples, uh, but they had fallen flat. Uh, and so because of this, uh, the people of Ireland were considered to be barbarians, uh, and the civilized world and the church at large deemed them unreachable. Right? They were unreachable. But Patrick had a very unique background and experience that gave him a unique perspective. Uh, you see, he was born into an English family, into a Romanized Catholic family. Uh, he could, would consider himself a Christian from a young age. He was baptized, knew the catechism. Uh, but he would later admit that his faith was kind of nominal. Uh, he would just recognize that like, he, was just, he was only Christian in name. Actually, he was known to be like the resident bad boy of his town. Uh, he, they would like, play pranks on the priests and things like that. It was kind of funny. Um, until the age of 16. His life was radically changed at the age of 16. Um, when Patrick was younger, when he was 16, uh, his hometown was attacked by, uh, by Celtic raiders, and he was kidnapped. Right? He was stolen away from his home, from his family. He was taken to Ireland, and he was forced into slavery at the age of 16. Talk about pivot. Right, life change. Uh, for the next six years of his life, he spent his life into, in one of two places. He was either out in the wilderness caring for you know, cattle and livestock and, uh, and doing what his masters uh, uh, had stolen him for, or he was in the master's compound and he was amongst the people there. Uh, and it wasn't until six years later that he awoke one morning with a dream, from a dream, and in his dream he literally heard the voice, your ship is ready. And so he took that as an announcement that his freedom was at hand. He woke up that morning early. He walked over to the seacoast. He found a ship that was promised to him in his dreams, negotiated his way onto it, and he was taken back to his homeland. For the next 25 years, Patrick spends either in monasteries, in seminary training, or as a pastor, as a priest of a local parish in his hometown. And it wasn't until 25 years later that Patrick has another dream. And in this second dream, uh, an angel appears to him with letters from his captors in Ireland. And he says, he says he imagined in that moment that he heard the voice of those very people were, that were from his captor's village. And they cried out as one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. And so yet again, he wakes up 
and he sees that the Lord is redirecting him in what he was doing. He took this as his Macedonian call, if you get that reference. It was, he recognized it as God calling him to return back to the, uh, the land of his captors with the gospel. And this is the crazy part. The, what, what Patrick starts in Ireland with a small team ends up having this widespread, like incredibly effective ministry, not just in Ireland, but in Scotland, in Wales, in England, and all of Western Europe. He's literally, um, uh, he's um, credited with re-evangelizing Western Europe during the Dark Ages. Right? This is an insane, widespread, multi uh, century movement. And so we could probably spend an entire year like unpacking like what was it about this movement that was so effective? What did they say? How did they live? Uh, we, could, we could dig deep into their methodology, their thinking, their philosophy. Um, Patrick, I mean, for certain, his years in captivity gave him an insight into the Celtic culture that no one else really had to the same level. Right? His training in the monastic movements and his ministry in the, in the parish, it gave him this, the tools necessary for a lifetime of spiritual formation. But one of the key distinctives that everyone points to in Patrick's life, in his ministry, in the teams that he formed, the communities that he formed, was this radical commitment to biblical hospitality the way that they lived amongst the people that they were trying to reach. Right, this word hospitality, it's interesting. Okay, depending on your background or your upbringing, you know, you might have a specific idea in your mind of what hospitality is, right? It, it, sometimes we think of like that perfectly curated Pinterest Joanna Gaines home, right? And it's filled with people and the cheese board is out and that's hospitality. Eh, kind of. Right, sometimes uh, you might think that like hospitality is like the hospitality industry, right? Hotels and like housekeeping and like someone makes your bed for you, like that's hospitality, right? Again, kind of. Biblical hospitality is so much more than these things. It comes from this Greek word philoxenos, right? Which is literally a compound word. It's two words that are smashed together. The word philo, if you remember from Philadelphia, is, is, is brotherly love, right? It's love. And then the word xenos is stranger. So the word philoxenos literally means stranger love. Right? If you know the word xenophobia, right, that is literally the antonym of philoxenos. Right? Xeno, again, is stranger. Phobia is fear. So if, if uh, xenophobia is the fear of a stranger, philoxenos is the love of a stranger. Listen to Henry Nowen. He says this, Hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. That's awesome, right? Uh, it's hard to look at the word hospitality and not see the word hospital in it, right? You hospitality, you see the word hospital. And just like a, a hospital is a space for healing and transformation and a hospital table, that operating table is a space for, for setting your body right and healing and bringing you back to health. In the same way, a kitchen table is a space of spiritual, and, 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 uh, spiritual healing and transformation, 
All right, Peter Lightheart puts it this way. We don't come, uh, we don't welcome the naked and the hungry so they can be naked and hungry in our company. That'd be silly. Right? We clothe and we feed them. Hospitality is not about toleration, but transformation. And the problem is that most often, uh, we don't see our homes this way. Right? But we, we tend to see our homes kind of like a, maybe a fortress. Right? It's a place for me to kind of like safely bunker up. Right? Maybe we see it like a, a private island or an oasis, right? It's a place of escape from the difficulties of life or a place for like personal rejuvenation. I think oftentimes we see our house kind of like a palace, right, where I am king. Everywhere else I go, someone tells me what to do, but in my house, nobody tells me what to do. Right? I'm the king of my house. Right? I've been intrigued recently about the change in our culture from the, from, uh, the front porch to the back deck. I live in an old house built in the 1900s. I got a beautiful front porch, um, and we love to hang out there. It's impossible for me to sit on my front porch and not engage with my neighbors. They're always walking by. We're seeing each other. We're engaging with one another, saying hello. But most houses built today don't have a front porch. They've got a back deck that's fenced in. And you can literally get up in the morning, you know, make your coffee, jump in your car, open the garage door, go to work, never see anyone, come home, push a button, the garage door opens, you drive in, close it, go to your house, uh, you eat your food, watch your Netflix, enjoy your back deck, and never actually engage with a stranger. Like, sure, you'll, you know, you'll invite a friend over or, a, or a, a family member over or people you're close to over, but you're not really forced to engage with someone you don't know. And if the last couple of years have taught us anything, it's like you don't even need to leave your home for the basic necessities. Right? You can get your groceries delivered. Right? If you want uh, uh, any, any takeout, you can get delivered to your house. Uh, this is a little bit of a confession moment for me. Sometimes when Brittany and I get home and, and uh, we've got the kids to bed and we're exhausted and it's late at night, but we want a snack, we have this app we use called GoPuff. Right? I'll give you guys the, my, my code later so I can get the credits. I'm just kidding. Um, we, this app called GoPuff, and you can literally get any snack you want, right? If you want ice cream, done. 15 minutes, it's at your door. Uh, if you want chips, done. 15 minutes, it's at your door. L- literally, you can get anything delivered to your house these days. Hospitality, it doesn't come naturally to our culture, right? It's not something that comes naturally to us. It takes intentionality, and it takes a transformed mindset to pursue a lifestyle of radical hospitality, right? It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to remind us of just how hospitable God has been towards us. So this morning, we're going to read through a passage in Luke chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If you have your phone, you can pull it up. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. Um, and I want to I kind of sit on this concept of God's hospitality towards us. Just for context, in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is invited into a, a home for a meal. And this is not uncommon for Jesus. Uh, one author says, you know, for all of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Right? Every aspect of Luke is about Jesus surrounded by a table. Right? And so in this particular passage, Jesus is invited to a, a dinner. Uh, and that, again, that's normal. He gets invited all the time. But this one is unique. In this particular invitation, there's a little bit of a trap set up for Jesus. Right? See, the host is a religious leader, and he wants to know if Jesus is going to break any Sabbath laws. 
right? The belief at the time was on Sabbath, you stop all your work. It's strict. There's no questions asked. There's no, uh, there's no grace around it. You just stop your work. And what does Jesus do for a living? He heals people. Right? He, he, uh, he, uh, um, he restores people's bodies. And so there's just conveniently a, a crippled man at, invited to dinner as well. This is a trap for Jesus. And so Jesus spends some time correcting their theology and their understanding of the Sabbath. Uh, he also makes some observations about the, the, uh, the ways that they engage with one another in, uh, at the dinner table. Uh, and he invites them towards humility. And then we get to this passage, Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him to his host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Don't forget those four categories. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you, have, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right, Jesus introduces this, this theme of an elaborate banquet where they're sitting at a dinner, right? That literally, this is, this is what they're involved in right now. And he's saying to them, he's giving, sharing some wisdom. When you invite someone who can repay you, you're going to get your reward here on earth. But when you invest, this is what biblical hospitality is about. When you invest into people that cannot repay you, the stranger, the outsider, someone you don't know, all of a sudden your reward becomes eternal. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this is not uncommon in Jesus' day. You share blessings all the time. We're sitting at a dinner table. Jesus just shared some wisdom, and I'm going to offer a blessing. Blessed is everyone who will eat at the kingdom of God. And the man who speaks, he makes two critical assumptions that I think Jesus wants to correct. Number one, uh, this man assumes that the kingdom of God is something in the future. Later. Later is when we're going to sit around the table, and, and it's going to be such a blessing to be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches all throughout uh, his ministry that the kingdom of God is here, now. I am ushering in the kingdom of God. Right now is the time for us to engage in these things. The second assumption he makes that's wrong uh, is he assumes that he's the kind of person who's going to be invited to that banquet. He assumes, I'm obviously a, a, a religious man. I'm obviously a godly man, so I'm going to be sitting at that table and eating bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus offers him a parable to help him rethink his position. Going on with this banquet theme, he says this, verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave, away, gave a, a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began making excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore cannot come. He doesn't even ask for an excuse. He's like, hey, bro. Let's get married. I'm going to be busy that night. Um, so he's throwing a banquet. He's done all the work. He's set a date. He sent out the invites. 
He's arranged all the details, the food, the decor, the activities. He's made the down payments. Everything is ready. He welcomes the guests into the party, and there's a plot twist. Everyone who RSVP'd yes, all of a sudden can't come. By the way, please don't do this for our gala. If you're going to come, we'd love for you to come, but let us know you're coming. All of these people that he invited into this space, his closest friends and his family and the people that, he, uh, that he's uh, connected to all of a sudden have these excuses. And they're not very good excuses either. Right? These excuses are indicative of what they actually th- uh, th- uh, thought of the host. Right? They don't think very highly of this host. They don't appreciate the cost and the effort that went into this party and they'd rather go about their business than join in the party. And this is such a disappointment. Right? Anyone ever throw a party that no one showed up to? Right? That's just not fun. Right? Jesus tells us that the master of the house becomes angry. He's frustrated. Understandably so. Right? These people offered him lip service. They said that they were going to come, but when it came time to follow through, they did not come. They bailed out. So what happens next? Verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, go out quickly into the streets, the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded is done, and there's still more room. And the master said, go out even farther to the highways, to the hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And this is where I want to kind of camp for the rest of our time this morning. Right? His mas- the master's response, the host's response to being rejected by his guests is not to cancel the party. Everything's ready. The party's going to go on. It's to throw open the doors and invite anyone and everyone who would be willing to come. Just go to the streets, to the highways, invite them, compel them. Go even farther. There's more room in this house. Right? If, they, if they feel funny about coming, maybe they don't have like, uh, their, their stuff together or they just don't feel comfortable in this kind of environment, compel them to come. Don't take no for an answer. Right? Get them in the house. This party is going on. Right? This house will not be empty. All are truly welcome. The people this man invites into his home are the outcasts of society. They would never have been invited into a party like this, and yet now they are the guests of honor. Right? These are the very people that Jesus surrounds himself with in his life and his teaching. Right? These are the people who are drawn to Jesus throughout his ministry. They, in their humility, they know that they are the outcasts, the poor, the destitute, and they don't pretend to be something else. So what does this all have to do with hospitality? Right, so I get it. In a real sense, Jesus is actually, he's casting a, a little bit of a prophecy here. He's saying that the people that he's come for, the Israelites, are going to reject him, and so the door is going to be opened up to the Gentiles and the rest of the world to come in. But... There's also a really important lesson for us here. Right? In a room like this, I likely don't need to convince you that biblical hospitality is an expectation that's laid out in the scriptures. 
Right? It's a command for us to live by. Right? I don't need to go to Genesis 12 and talk to you about how we've been blessed to be a blessing. I don't need to go to Romans 12 and tell you that you know, we've been commanded to, uh, to, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to seek, the, uh, uh, to, seek to show hospitality. Right? We don't need to look at 1 Peter 4 where he says that God expects us to show hospitality without grumbling. Right? You see where I'm going here? How about that, that passage in Hebrews, a really strange one where he says, hey, by the way, sometimes when you show hospitality, you might be entertaining angels and not even know it. Right? That's just a, a, like a weird passage. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yes, biblical hospitality is an expectation. It's a requirement of those that follow the way of Jesus. It's also a deeply held practice uh, and lifestyle of the church throughout the ages. Just watch. Watch what the church does throughout the ages. They're deeply hospitable. It's not really about whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, rich or poor. It's just what we do. It's who we are because this is what our God is about. But the reason that we do this is because we were once the outsider. We were once the, the people on the highways and the lanes and the streets that, that the master of the house invites us in to join him in the banquet house. Right? The Bible opens up with God creating a garden and welcoming us into it. And the Bible ends with God creating a garden and welcoming us into it. Right? This is all throughout the scriptures. At the risk of inserting ourselves into a passage we may not belong in, I wonder this morning if you need to ask the question, who in this parable do I most resonate with? Right, as you're listening to these stories, are you the person that kind of grew up in the church and you always kind of assumed you were saved, always thought you were a devoted follower of Jesus, but maybe you've paid a lot of lip service uh, to Jesus. Maybe like Patrick, your faith has been a little bit nominal. And when it comes time to actually living out the path of Jesus, you just have a bunch of excuses. And I got kids, my house is always messy. I don't have time, my job is a little stressful right now. Or maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you are the outsider, the outcast, the one that God is freely inviting into the house. You are invited to join the party. You are invited just as you are. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to put yourself together before you come. You just need to come. You've been welcomed. If there's one thing that's abundantly clear all throughout the scriptures is that God in his great mercy for us came after us when we were weak, broken, and running away from him. Right? And if we practice hospitality out of some sort of obligation or duty, I think we just missed the point. Right? But when we recognize the incredible hospitality that God has shown towards us, we become compelled to move from being party guests to being party hosts. We turn around, when we enter this house, we turn around and we say, hey, there's more room in this house. Let me go get a few more people. Right? There's room here in the kingdom of God. I need to go and get my, my, my friends. I need to go get my, my family. I need to go get just anyone I can get off the street and get them into this house. I said this, one of the major reasons why St. Patrick's mission to, uh, to Ireland and to Western Europe was so incredibly effective was because their team had a biblical perspective of hospitality. Right? They didn't run away from culture, they ran towards it. 
They didn't hide their communities in the desert like some Christians. They moved their communities into the cities and into the villages in proximity where people could find them and come be near them. Right? Their homes and their monasteries were among the people that they were trying to reach, and they were open to the people. And just as a little fun fact, uh, one of the goals of every one of their communities was to create a guest house. And this guest house was always placed in like the best part of the community with the best views, the best access. And anyone who showed up at their gate, be it a a 14-year-old boy or be it a 65-year-old grandma, was welcomed in, given a place to stay, and just given time to sort out whatever it was that God was doing in their life. Patrick had this belief that it's important to belong before you believe. And so they wanted to create these spaces for people to belong before they believed. I can't even begin to express how incredibly widespread this ministry was in his day. As we're going to unpack what biblical hospitality looks like in just real practical terms of the next couple of weeks, my prayer for you is that you invite the Holy Spirit to do some rearranging in your soul. Right? It's easy to listen to a sermon like this, to a teaching like this, and say, oh yeah, I agree, that's right, biblical hospitality, yay, and then not actually do anything about it not actually transform the way that we live our lives. It's easy to hear this and just agree with it. Yeah, yeah, Tim, go. Right? My prayer is that you're invited, that the Holy Spirit in, it just rearranges some of your priorities, that he transforms your view of your home and your possessions. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit creates in you a longing to reflect our Father in this way. Every single Sunday, uh, we stand together and we read our giving liturgy. We didn't read it this morning on purpose. Some of you were like, we forgot something. It was on purpose. All right, I'm going to invite you guys in a minute to stand with me. And we're going to read our giving liturgy again. You're welcome to stand now. Yeah. We're going to read our liturgy together. But you'll notice I've made some tweaks to it. I took some creative liberties with our liturgy this morning. Because generosity and hospitality are very closely entwined together. You can't be radically hospitable if you're not radically generous. So join me as we read this on the screen together. There is nothing we have that we have not received. To spend everything on ourselves and to give without sacrifice is to walk the way of death. But generosity is the way of those who call Jesus their Lord, who love with free hearts and serve with renewed minds. I'm going to pause you right there, actually. This, this, is, this is the old one I'm looking at the screen right here. We're going, to, we're going to restart this whole thing. You ready? Chapman, you got the new one up there? No? All right, then you listen. Follow along with the old one, and, and you, you're going to compare and contrast a little bit and see if you can figure out where the new one is. You can put the old one back up. There's nothing we have that we have not received. And to spend everything on ourselves and to give without sacrifice is to walk the way of death. But hospitality is the way of those who call Jesus their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of self.
We are determined to increase in hospitality until it can be said that there's no stranger among us. We are determined to be faithful stewards of such a little thing as our house that we may join God in the work of renewal. Above all things, we are determined to be hospitable because our Father is hospitable. It is the delight of his daughters and sons to share their father's traits and to show what he is like to all the world. This is our prayer. This is our goal. Holy Spirit, would you enable us? Holy Spirit, would you transform us? Holy Spirit, would you inspire us to live in this way? to see our homes the way you see them, to see our possessions the way you see them, to see our lives, our very lives, the way you see them. We invite you to do a work in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.